short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. This bitch up. I am fucking exhausted. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. I think a lot of people were saying that about Hillary Clinton as well. The, the obvious answer is it's payback time. Because <laughs> you're that good. Because you're that good. Common sense is not sexy. Welcome back, Ray Harris, yes. uh, to the Cold War show. Thank you for joining me, <laughs> finally, right. this morning, right. Ray Harris. Yeah. Hey, you know, you're welcome. No, it, you know, it's the time change. I forget about it, and it confuses everything until we get our ducks in a row again. But for everybody else, welcome to a rare Tuesday night session with Cam and Ray. Well, we're still talking about Israel, Hell yeah. uh, Zionism, all those sorts of things. Right. Um, we, we, uh, uh, what I want to explore today is the uh, how early the tensions mm. started arising between these uh, Russian atheist uh, uh, communist Jews right. who just started turning up on in on boats in uh, Palestine and the the local inhabitants, mostly uh, Muslim Arabs. Mm-hmm. And um, according to all of the research, Ray, it started pretty much straight away. Yeah, uh, they, they, they didn't get along well, uh, from the very get-go. Bit like, bit like <laughs> you know, you and Markham. The first time you met Markham, there was just oh, like, there was oh, just tension. Yeah, I could feel it. You could cut ten- the air jealous. with a knife. I was jealous. I was jealous. <laughs> Yeah. I think he's the one who's jealous, my friend. <laughs> I, I appreciate you saying that. It's probably not true. But no, but you make a good point because when they when the um the Jews come, the Zionists have made it quite clear from the beginning they're not gonna be pushovers anymore. They're going to break the, the law, you know, for the last two thousand years. They're gonna work the land, they're gonna become hardy people, they're gonna become people of the of the earth, and they're just not gonna be pushed around anymore. So when they do come, and I don't wanna overemphasize this, but they do come with a bit of a chip on their soldier shoulder with a new attitude, and they're just basically going to come in you know, get land and not take shit from anybody, which is automatically going to set up tensions with the locals. Yeah, and as as we explained in an earlier episode, this was surprising because the Jews have been taking shit for two thousand years, <laughs> exactly. and, and all of a sudden, exactly. all of a sudden, <clears throat> this new breed of take no shit Jews um, turned up, the toss Jews, uh, and uh, everyone was like. <laughs> the fuck? Where did you come from? <laughs> yeah, one of the guys I, I mentioned in an earlier episode, uh, Ahad Khayyam, one of the early Zionist colonists, yeah. um, wrote that his fellow colonists quote behaved towards the Arabs with hostility and cruelty, yeah. trespass without justification, beat them shamefully without sufficient cause, and then boast about it. Oh, oh my God! So that's. The words of a Zionist right. Collins but, about his fellow Zionists. Right, but if I can um, just piggyback on that, to a point that you made on a previous episode, a lot of these uh, either Zionists or Jews, you know, this is set up by the Zionists, they're coming thinking, this is the land that was promised to us by God, if you are religion. If not, you're just trying to escape persecution, and that's fine too. But they have a general sense that there's no one there. It's just land waiting for them. So not only are there people there, but they're locals. They're used to being in charge, and they're, like you said, they're used to looking down on the Jews, and now the Jews are are giving them a hard time. To add on to that, one of the other um, pioneers of modern uh, Hebrew literature, Yosef Kayyem Brenner, 
who came in on this second Aaliyah. You know, he had he wrote a lot of different novels, and one of his characters says something like, Before going to Palestine, the country, for some reason, appeared in my imagination as one city inhabited by non-religious Jews, surrounded by many fields, all empty, empty, empty waiting for the people to come and cultivate them. So again, they're coming with a chip on their shoulder. They're trying to get away from something. They think the land is empty, and it's not, and the locals are giving them attitude. The The Jews are going to fight fire with fire from day one. Mm. And as I think we've explained in, in some of the earlier episodes, the Arabs had more sympathy from the Ottoman government and police, mm-hmm. as you would expect, for all the reasons that uh, I think we've talked about before, uh, a the the Ottomans uh, are going to be more favourable, you would think, in most situations right. to Ottoman citizens, not to foreign interlopers, and b uh, the Jews were were Russians who were the Ottomans' right. great enemies, right. and and suspected. Uh, communists and anarchists, uh, because you know they, they were being uh, they were they were Russians, and most of the Russian Jews were communists uh, at this stage. So, uh, you know, the, the, obviously, any government uh, when it's faced with uh, interlopers who coming from their great enemy that are probably troublemakers, Spies. basically, yeah, <laughs> I think we've pointed this, but basically, the Muslims, the Muslim Arabs, saw the Jews. The way that most countries in the West today see Muslim Arabs, yeah. Uh, well, just yeah. by nature of the fact right. that you're a Muslim Arab trying to get into our country, you're probably you're a terrorist, right? You're sus- yeah. you're a spy, or whatever. But see, and I don't want to beat this point uh, over the head too much. But you made the point in a previous episode about these people are coming in; they're thinking the land is empty; they're not going to have any trouble. But the more politically aware Zionists were, were they knew the truth; they knew what was going on. In fact, they recommended, "Look, we're going to try to." It's like it's like the difference between a knife fight and a gun or something. We're going to try to slip the blade in very gently and evenly at first. So what we need to do is a lot of the Zionists recommended setting up schools where Arabic could be taught to the children so they could learn the locals' ways and try to get along with them, knowing that in the long term they were going to buy up all their land, take over, and make it into a Jewish state. So the Zionists knew exactly what they were doing. Just because they didn't admit it openly doesn't mean it wasn't something that was thought out, backed by a lot of money that we're going to go into later. It was a plan all along to take over. And you just have to be honest about that. Yeah, and I think that is something that is not very well understood, Mm. that from the very earliest stages when the Zionists started to move there, their intention, most of them anyway, from what I can tell, their intention wasn't, well, we're just going to come over and live peacefully. Live and let live, baby. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. From the get-go, it's like, we're going to take it over and get rid of the Arabs and take over the country and make it a country just for Jews. That was their... That was their intention from the very beginning, and there's, there's plenty of evidence that will go over that backs that up. Now, one of the other reasons why the um, Arabs, though, sort of had a, a leg up, I guess, against the Jews early on is mm-hmm. that they had the right to bear arms. Yes. Uh, and they knew how to use them better than most Jews because they had had them for a long time, and Jews usually in the countries that they were coming from, mostly Ukraine and Russia at this point in time, hadn't been allowed to bear arms uh, because they were Jews. And there's one thing that you, right. you learn quite on uh, when you're pogromming against Jews is easier to do that if they don't <laughs> have guns. So... That's, that's uh, fact. And, yeah. and the Jews uh, that, that went to Palestine obviously worked out that they needed to arm themselves fairly early. So they started smuggling illegally their own arms into the country. Yeah. Can, can, I, can I, just before you go on, I have to mention this one thing because I want to add it on to the Ahad Aham quote that you gave earlier about beating people and bragging about it. They couldn't have guns. Uh, I'm not sure about knives, but one of the gray areas when it comes to weapons 
seem to be whips. There's this one instance where the, uh, the the Jewish settlers are coming in. They start lording it over the locals who are obviously less educated than themselves. And they're actually at some point using whips on the locals and they're bragging about it. Now, I don't know about you, but nothing says... I think I'm better than you more than actually whipping someone, um, you know, as opposed to just pushing them down or, or calling their mom a bad name. But when you actually take out your Indiana Jones whip and just start going at people, you know, chasing them away, that pretty much says right there, I think I'm awesome and you're subhuman. And that's what they're doing to some of the locals. Yeah, unless it's the sexy. sexy. <laughs> what's the safe word? Come on, what's the safe word? Yeah. I'm turned on. Yeah, Yahweh, I think it's. Anyway, Benny Morris. Yeah, Benny Morris in his book. uh, He's a he's an Israeli historian who um, isn't very well liked by a lot of Israelis because uh, he says things that don't fit with the official narrative. Anyway. In his book, he says, for decades, the Zionists tried to camouflage their real aspirations for fear of angering the authorities and the Arabs. They were, however, certain of their aims and of the means needed to achieve them. Internal correspondence among the Olim from the very beginning of the Zionist enterprise leaves little room for doubt. Vladimir Dubnov, one of the Billium, wrote to his brother, the historian Simon Dubnov, in October 1882, quote, The ultimate goal is, in time, to take over the land of Israel and to restore to the Jews the political independence they have been deprived of for these 2,000 years. Mm. The Jews will yet arise and, arms in hand, if need be, declare that they are the masters of their ancient homeland. Damn. If, um, Benny, Benny Morris goes on to say that Dubnov himself shortly afterwards returned to Russia. Couldn't, didn't, couldn't handle it. Yeah, if I can give another one of those quotes, uh, quotes uh, Ben Yehuda, who is the author of the first modern Hebrew dictionary, who settled in Jerusalem in September of 1881, you know, during the first Aliyah, he wrote the following year, the thing we must do now is to become strong as we can, to conquer the country covertly. Bit by bit, we will not set up committees so the Arabs will know what we're after. We shall act like spies. We shall buy, buy, buy. So just be honest and say, because the world is what the world is, you're you're out to get this land by hook or by crook. And just be honest about it. But that somehow, if you do that, you're somehow anti-Semite or you're attacking Islam or or you're attacking Israel or whatever. But yeah, like you were saying in the previous episode, some people can't handle any criticism of anything Israel does, even its formation as a country. Same guy, Ben Yehuda, in October 1882, wrote to a friend back in Russia, said, we have made it a rule not to say too much except to those we trust. The goal is to revive our nation on its land. If only we succeed in increasing our numbers here until we are the majority. There are now only 500,000 Arabs who are not very strong and from what we shall easily take away the country if only we do it through stratagems and without drawing a upon us their hostility before we become the strong and populous ones. Wow. The Arabs, both urban and rural, gradually came to fear, anxiety and fear, according to Benny Morris. Mm-hmm. Acute Jewish observers began to sense the changing mood. Ahad Hayem, after his visit in 1891, wrote, If a time comes when our people in Palestine develop so that in small or great measure they push out the native inhabitants... Right. These will not give up their place easily. Yeah. So letters like this from 1881, 1882, from the earliest Zionist settlers, seems to indicate Mm -hmm. that at least some of these Jewish settlers from the very, very beginning had uh, had a plan to take over take over the land quietly secretly, surreptitiously. Right. But but let me ask you, I mean, so let's say like it's, and I don't know, I'm just picking a number here. Let's say it's 5 to 10% of the people have this plan in place and then the other 90% people don't. They just want to come in, live, you know, go back to a place where their ancestors came from, not be, 
you know, tortured and killed and maimed by uh, either Russians or, or Western Europeans or whatever. But the point is the 10% who do want this c- can just use the sheer numbers of the people, the other Jews that are coming in to, uh, like you said, just to come in, build up the place, buy the land, push the locals out, harass them, make it so unpleasant for them to live that they try to go somewhere else. So it doesn't have to be a majority of the group that's doing it. As long as there's enough who are setting out to systematically take over, it would seem that that still can be just as effective as if it was 50 or 60 percent who are in on this plan. And I I have no idea uh, what percentage of these early settlers had this. Could have been 100 percent, could have been 10 percent. I really don't know. But as you say, it it only takes a small percentage. And uh, like um, the communists, when they took over Russia, you just need a a vanguard. You need... you need a small team of leadership that have a plan and know what they're doing. Now, on top of these tensions, there are also labor issues, as you hinted at earlier. The the Jews that were going to Palestine wanted to break the stereotype of Jews as just white-collar workers. Right. As we've explored in the past, Jews had been banned from owning land and working the land for vast majority of the last couple of thousand years because land was how most people made money. That was the you know it was an agricultural based society most mm-hmm. places in the world and uh, the Jews were kept out of that which is why they tended to end up as uh, bankers and uh, uh, lawyers and jewelers and other sorts of uh, indoor type professions because right. they were banned Podcasters. from working the land. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you said you were the so, you were the first uh, history podcast. Hello, hello, on. hello, go hello. Ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, hello. It's like. Uh, Hello, welcome to This American Life. This is Ira Ira Glass. Today on the show, story in three acts. Act one, the Jews. The the Jews take over podcasting. Act two. But we're not telling anybody. Yeah. Ray and Cam, Ray and Cam protest. Act act number three. Ray and Cam get called anti-Semitic for wanting to control podcasting. And... uh, that's how it would go. Shamed. That's how it would go. Shamed into quitting. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, what were you saying? I invented history podcasting. That is true. Yeah. But um, I just would like to think some, well, not I don't like to think, but I imagine somewhere there was a Jewish podcaster before you who just didn't toot his own no. horn. He didn't want any cause any trouble. So the honor goes no. to you, sir. No, it was you. Well, was the, you. The, the history podcaster before me, well, there were two. Uh, one was Professor Professor Bob, right? Uh, I don't think he's a Jew. Not a no, Jew. No, I don't think so. I don't think Professor Bob. No, doesn't. And the guy who, right? The guy who did the Byzantine Emperor series. Uh, I can't remember his name. I'm not sure. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm. Wow, you are reaching back. Anyways, please. So yeah, the Jews wanted to work the land. They agreed amongst themselves apparently that the Arabs should be prevented from working the land. The land that the Arabs had owned for generations, and then as the taxes were raised on that raised on that land, and it yeah. was bought by uh, wealthy, often Christians, often as we've seen in earlier episodes, who didn't even live in Palestine. <laughs> they were property speculators, basically that were snapping up this land, they would let the Arabs continue to work the land as tenant farmers while wow. they m- made their plans to turn it all into condominiums. Right. And uh, But now the Jews, when they're buying the land, won't even let the Arabs work it because yeah. they wanted to work it themselves. Yeah. Uh, Ben-Gurion uh, was talking about complete separation of Arab and Jewish societies and economies. He didn't want to have any integration between wow. the two. Yeah. So, and, and part of this too apparently was to give the Jews who were arriving full employment. Didn't yes. want the Jews getting there and not having anything to do. So the Billiam Charter of 1883, Billiam was the word for rural Jewish settlers. Uh, settlers. That's hard to say, rural Jewish. Mm. Rural, rural Jura. <laughs> it is. Isn't that an it SNL is. sketch? The rural, rural Jura. Jura. Yes, yes rural it is. Jura. It's like, oh, the rural Jewish <laughs> settlers. No wonder they came up with a word for it. Well, they just call it Billiam. That's, uh, That's better. B- Billiam better. Billiam better Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> <laughs> 
They had uh, the the charter of 1883 had declared that the newly acquired lands would be cultivated without the help of native Arab oh, inhabitants. So yes. so they even put it in writing yeah. amongst themselves. A guy called Menachem Yusishkin, who was the president of the Jewish National Fund, demanded Hebrew labor and the replacement of Arab workers by Jews as early as 1890, more than sort of 10 years before the second Aliyah. Right. So from the very get-go, it wasn't just we're going to take over the land, it's we're going to... They're basically planning to get rid of all of the employment opportunities for the local Arab. We're going to take your land and we're going to prevent you from working the land... So you have to leave. Uh, what are they going to do for an income? Yeah. Not, not my fucking problem. Exactly. Yeah, if, if I can add on to that, you make a good point because during the first Aliyah, when the Jewish settlers started coming, obviously they were so bad at farming, they actually, in a very ironic way, relied on the locals for uh, supplies and labor. But like you said, that very quickly phases out. It's, it's seen as, it's seen as you know, not good, not supporting your own if, if you hire the Arabs for, uh, for labor. So, they, so they, that starts to trail off, but then they still try to use them for supplies. And then even that trails off, and they start passing these laws. And by the time the second Aliyah comes, it's not even a possibility legally or in the mindset of the new settlers to even use the, the Arabs in any way, shape or form. So that gets shut down really quick. And like you just said, if you buy up all the land and there's no way to make a living, what are you going to do? You're going to take your family and you're going to go elsewhere. So the point is all of this is creating tensions right from the get go. And the Jewish attitude to some degree, like you just said, was not my fucking problem. And it's going to lead to yeah. tension, obviously. Yeah. And I, and I can't point this out enough that these mm-hmm. Zionist settlers were illegal immigrants. This wasn't kosher. Details. This wasn't details. This, you know, this wasn't a case where the Ottomans were like, sure, sure, come in, come in. Like, I mean, I mean, yeah, no, there were there were uh, corrupt local right. officials who right. would take the backsheesh, take the bribes, and, yeah. and sneak them in through the back door. But these were, for to the for bleh, to a large extent, these were illegal immigrants that right. were coming in secretly, buying up the land and kicking the Arabs, the locals, off it, preventing them from working it. I mean, it's important to understand. Like again, you, if you put that in a modern context, people in Australia are going off their fucking tree all of the time about stopping illegal immigration, and you yeah. know, the illegal immigrants that are coming in here usually. Uh, well, a they're not illegal. Uh, mostly, they're they're, they're uh, people coming in via boat, claiming sanctuary, claiming asylum, which is actually legal, not illegal. And usually, they're poor. They've they've got nothing. They've come yeah. from war torn countries where they just want to exactly. Yeah, as as I'm sure a lot of these Zionists were as well, which is why they were getting funding support from the Rothschilds and people like that. But they were getting the the funding support to come in and buy the land and kick people off the land, which is, um, you yeah. know, when 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 asylum seekers come to Australia, to the best of my knowledge, not many of them are buying up the land and kicking the uh, local inhabitants off of it and saying, no, sorry. Right. But see, here's the thing. I, I just have to mention this real quick, again, because, you know, you have to jump in the future, but... For, for people trying to judge the situation back then, because of the Holocaust, the Jews get a pass. But just imagine people from Central and South America sneaking across the border, heading into the Midwest of the United States, and they're backed by rich people. Hell, I don't know, maybe drug lords, or they just saved up their money for years, and they start buying local property in the United States. They're legal. Maybe they have to buy it through somebody else who's already here legally or whatever. And they just start, I mean, we would still come down hard on that once we found out it was happening. But I think the, like you said this earlier, the governments of Western Europe are okay with this. In fact, they're actually trying to help protect the Jews because they'd rather have the Jews in Palestine than in their countries. So again, yeah. they're they're not getting they're not getting crap from the governments back home. Imagine the Mexicans sneaking through somehow <laughs> Trump's wall, which is a fabulous wall. It's a tremendous wall, I have to say. Uh, they Everybody's paid for it, about it. So yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
they're coming they're coming through the wall, buying up Texas and kicking Americans out of Texas. Going, right. no, you know, this is yeah. this is our place now go. because I don't uh, care. Yeah, Qu- go to Kansas. Quetzalcoatl, Quetzalcoatl uh, promised it to us. Uh, 2,000 years ago. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the name of the Aztec god. That's probably close enough. Probably not. That's close never, enough. Never yeah. known how to pronounce Chocolate, Aztec or Inca. Virgin god. sacrifices, you know, and we get this land back. Yeah. Fox is obsessed with Inca culture. Um, there really? Is this, uh, at, there's this animated um, show on Netflix called Pachamama. Oh, my God. Um, I don't know if your girls have ever watched this, but I don't think it's so. beautiful. It's like one of these really very, very well done uh, kid uh, animations. Just, just beautiful. Right, and uh, it's about a it's about a kid, an Inca kid, and it's about the um, the 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 Spanish coming in and all Ooh, this kind of stuff. Right, Fox Fox has watched it like a million times. Oh, totally God. obsessed <laughs> with. Uh, he's always talking to me Which about side the is great he on? Inca. Which side is and... he? On? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> oh no, definitely the side of the Incas, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's we've okay. it's led to us having these conversations about the conquistadors and now they they sort of you know committed acts of genocide. I'm having this conversation with a five year old because of the this <laughs> cartoon that he's, he's watching. Like, it's sure. great, you know. He's sure. Right. He's being yeah. introduced to history um, and colonialism uh, through works. this beautiful animation. So anyone out there, if you've got young kids, uh, show them Pachamama. Um, really, really nice. And, they can, handle, and um, they can handle genocide. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I teach your kids about colonialism and genocide from an early age, I say. Tell you what, speaking of which, uh, closely linked, I'm just, I'm in the middle of, I was up all night reading 100 Years of Solitude, finally. Gabriel Yacia Marquez's 1967 masterpiece. Have you ever read mm. that? No, I have not. Tell oh, me about it. Like, seriously deserves... Well, it, it, I mean, I won't go into it, but seriously deserves... It's like one of these books... You know, I recently read, I think I told you, um, Hemingway's... Uh, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls? Right. No. Um, you sure? No fuck. What was what was the Hemingway book that I read recently? Um, Jesus was, Christ. Was it about the ambulance guy and the war? I'm trying to remember. No, it was it was about the Spanish Civil War. Um, okay. Was it for whom the bell tolls? I think it was. If I had to guess, I think it was. <laughs> what's that? What's that book about? No, I, I don't know. No fucking <laughs> Hemingway hell. Jesus and I... Spanish Civil War. Look that up real quick. My my brain, man. It's too it's early. Not... It's too early. Oh, uh, well, I had like two hours of sleep last night. Oh, uh, yes. God. For whom the bell tolls? That's who it was. Robert Jordan mm-hmm. goes in the Spanish Civil War. One of these things you finally get around to reading some of these classics. You go, holy shit! This this is a class. I know why this is. Uh, <laughs> no, it's a class. Yeah, this, this gets. Yeah, no, right. like fuck. This is such a great. Anyway, yeah, Gabriel Yacia Marquez. A uh, hundred years of childhood, just fa- just fabulous. Like oh, anyway, you know I don't read a lot of uh, fiction. But, right. Um, anyway, he, he talks a lot about he's a, he was a Colombian author, uh, considered by some the greatest uh, Spanish language uh, novelist since Cervantes. Um, mm. uh, uh, and and uh, he was you know it's a sort of it's about seven or nine generations of this one family fictional. But it talks a lot about um, yeah, colonialism and, and uh, civil war in Colombia. And uh, Marquez was good friends with Fidel Castro. He was a socialist his oh, entire wow. life. Right. Only died. Only died a few years ago. Uh, lived lived quite a, an old age. Wrote this book when he was forty, I think, in nineteen sixty seven. Um, anyway, don't know how I got into that. Check it, Check out. it out if you haven't read it. You're looking for a good read. Uh, grab a hundred years of solitude. It's it's got the cam stamp of approval. Cam, cam <laughs> it's cam approved. Uh, <laughs> uh, anywho, yes, I want to talk about the first Zionist colony, Ray Petak Tikva. Oh, that's nice. Please, yeah. Uh, so it was established originally in 1870. Before the Russian pogrom that led to the first major aliyah by some Jewish pioneers from Europe, uh, 
Right. Uh, but then the, the site was abandoned because it was built like near a swamp and malaria oh, broke okay, out. Okay. And But then people resettled it a few years later during the first Aaliyah. The Olam, Olam, by the way, means immigrants uh, as part of an Aaliyah to gotcha. Israel. They're called the Olam, O-L-I-M. So this, this uh, first Aaliyah Olam resettled it in 1882 with financial assistance uh, from Baron Edmund de Rothschild, Ooh. who paid for swamp drainage. He said, we're going we're gonna to empty the swamp. Uh, we're going to clean the swamp. Uh, but he meant it literally. He did, uh, yes. You're going get to get rid of corruption in the White House? No, no, literally <laughs> no. we're going to the, drain a swamp. A swamp. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, before the first Aaliyah, most of the Jews living in Palestine were of two types. Oh. Ashkenazi and Sephardic. And I, I want to explain the difference between the two um, because I think it's good to know. Know, know, your, know your Jews <laughs> is what I always say. <laughs> no, that sounds... I'm uncomfortable. That sounds terrible. Yes. Uh, yeah, but no, for all my life I've heard of Ashkenazim and Sephardic. I, I never really knew the difference, so maybe there are other people out there. I mean, do, do you are you familiar with your different branches <laughs> of uh, Judaism? Not right? until recently, no, never heard of them. Well, not branches, I mean, they're, they're basically uh, communities, I guess. So, right. your Ashkenazi Jews, uh, diaspora Europeans. They first coalesced around places like Mainz in Germany. Uh, we've talked about Mainz on the Renaissance show right? recently. That's where yeah. that's where uh, Joey Joey G yeah. Gutenberg Joe G. Yeah. Inv- <laughs> invented the printing press, and we talked about how his uh, the house that he was born in was taken from Jews. During uh, one of these pogroms, right. uh, German pogroms, yes. where they, like we we're talking in the, probably I think we said the 1200s, where uh, Jews got blamed for a plague or an outbreak of death of Christian kids or something, and so they kicked them all out. Right. And uh, one of Gutenberg's great-grandfathers yeah. was able to buy cheaply this house that was owned by Jews. Oh. Anyway, so that's, the Ashkenazi came from there. Uh, they spoke Yiddish, which is a Germanic language that's kind of made up of elements of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Slavic languages. Mm-hmm. And they, they were driven there, when they were driven out of Judea by the Romans and then later the Christians and the Muslims, a lot of them made their way to the Rhine, these different cities on the Rhine, including Mainz. Right. Ashkenaz, by the way, is a character in the Bible. He's a descendant of Noah, but... Sort of by the Middle Ages, the word was associated with a certain geographical area around the Rhineland in Western Germany. And gotcha. as a result of that, the Jewish culture that developed there, when you, when you put people in a place for a thousand years, they're going to develop their own culture. Mm-hmm. And those people became known as the Ashkenazi, which is how they're still known as today. So basically, oh, and then after, you know, after they got a sort of pogromed out of... Uh, Germany at different stages, they spread out to Ukraine and Russia and places like Mm, that. So the Russian Jews that are moving to Palestine in the 1880s are all Ashkenaz. All right. Now, the other other major group of Jews were the Sephardi, Sephardic Jews. These are, again, diaspora Jews, but from Spain. Sepharad literally means Spain. So... These so one big group of diasporas went to Germany, another big group went to Spain, and they kind of developed slightly differently in terms of the customs that they developed and also their their ancestry. And if you look at the autosomal DNA mm-hmm. of Ashkenazi right. and Sephardic Jews, do do you know what autosomal DNA is? Ray, nobody knows more about genetics <laughs> and. Uh, the genome than you, Ray right. Harris. Yeah. Explain to everyone what autosomal DNA is, please. Um, you know, I could and I would, but I think that the words I would use would just be way too big. Um, Go over our head. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some, sometimes it's difficult to, to explain it to dullards. 
I get it. I feel that all the time. So, so let right. me. Should I? Should I? Should I try and explain it to people? Right? Give me. Give me a crack, and you if, tell me if I. If, if you I'm don't wrong, mind, if I, if I make some Thank mistakes. You. Yeah. Autosomal DNA is when you look at all of the chromosomes except the sex chromosomes, the X and Y chromosomes. But those are the best ones. So, go ahead. Sorry. I know, they're the sexiest yeah, yeah, yeah. chromosomes. Uh, but we're not looking at the sexy ones right now. So if you look at the autosomal DNA of Ashkenazic and Sephardic Jews, they right. have roughly 30% European ancestry. Uh, most of the rest of it is from the Middle East. Oh. However, right. if you look at the mitochondrial DNA and you look at the maternal lineages of Jewish populations from both Ashkenazic and Sephardic, they have a lot of European mothers. Okay. So basically all these Jewish men in the diaspora banged a lot of hot white European women. <laughs> as you do. And their kids. Right. <laughs> as you try to do. <laughs> and ended up with a lot of kids. So 80% of Ashkenazi maternal ancestry comes from... European gotcha. women. Obviously easy. In a study, Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, this is yes. important to understand because uh, your tribe uh, in, in Judaism, the, you know, if you're from the tribe of uh, 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 Ab- uh, not Abraham, the, the tribe of um, uh, uh, Vinny or the tribe of Bobby... No. <laughs> The Levites, right. trying to remember my Jewish uh, twelve tribes right now. You've got you got you got the Levites and you've got the uh, Luddites. No, that's not right. No, anyway, your tribes that you come down in, the tribe of Ephraim, etc. That's determined by maternal okay. bloodlines. All right, you get your tribe from your mother, which is why like the whole thing about Jesus. I talk about this in the documentary briefly. You know, when you look at the New Testament, they're talking about um, Jesus supposedly is descended. He's of the tribe of King David, but they explain it as coming through his father, Joseph. No. You don't get your tribe from your father. You get your tribe from your mother. Not to mention the fact that the Gospels also say that Joseph wasn't his father, so that doesn't (laughs) make any sense anyway. And they don't tell you... (laughs) That Mary was from the tribe of David. Just anyway, it's all because the New Testament was written by Greek Gentiles who didn't understand anything about (laughs) Judaism. So they're just writing this stuff. They don't know. Stick it in there. They're they're just making it up. Yeah. 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 No one's going to know. And no one does know. You ask Christians today. No idea. Most uh, your your Western, your Christians, like, uh, how does this work? Yeah. They don't know. Anyway. So uh, that's the problem for Judaism today, I guess, is. They're all from European mothers. Right. Now, if you look at the, uh, the 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 male genetics, though, uh, there was a study done. And by the way, I want to I want to say at the outset, a lot of this stuff is very delicate and sensitive, as you can imagine. Right. There are people who, um, like, there, there are scientists who disagree with this kind of stuff. So you know, take this as something that's uh, right. controversial. Right. But these right. are the studies that I can come up with. In a study of Israeli Jews and Palestinian Muslim Arabs. Uh-oh. More than 70% of the Jewish men and 82% of the Arab men had inherited their Y chromosomes from the same ancestors, Ooh. paternal ancestors, Ooh-oh. who lived in the region over the last few thousand years. Are you trying to get stoned? So, Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, weed is still not legal here. Um, so, I meant the biblical stoned. Although... Right. Oh, that kind of stone, yeah. the not good stone. Yeah, because you're pissing yeah. people off. Go ahead. Um, shout out to Andre Bravo, who's listening to this. Um, one of our one of our long time long time listeners had a chat with him on Skype the other day. He's in Toronto, and he's uh, he's an analyst for the weed industry uh, over there. Oh, nice financial analyst, economist. Let me get smart, okay. smart chappy right. for the in the in the weed industry. So had a good chat. Anywho. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I remember having conversations with some Jewish friends, you know, 20 years ago about this. I'm like, wait, you know, aren't you and, and Arabs all basically the same people? Don't you have the, basically the same ancestors? Genetically, 
Aren't you pretty yeah. much very, very similar? They're oh, like, no, you. no, yeah. completely different. It's like, really? Are you sure? <laughs> you, you sure? Because I, I think you're probably all descended oh, from the same. No, no. Crazy. But yeah, it turns yeah. out, at least according to the studies that I was reading, that um, they are all, at least in their, their Y lines, their Y chromosomes, their paternal wow. lines, descended from the same the same fathers if you go back a few thousand years ago. Interesting. Um, okay. Anyway, um, so that's your difference between your Ashkenazi and your Sephardic Jews. Now, the original site for Petak Tikva had been bought from two Jaffa Christian Arabs. Do you have Jaffas over there as a... Is that a confectionery product in the United not, States or is it Yeah, just not that I'm Australian aware of. Thing? Not that I'm aware Oh, did I give you Jaffas when you um, were here? You gave me lots of things, but I don't remember specifically Jaffa. Hmm. Jaffas. I'll send you some All Jaffas right. uh, in my next uh, cool. care package. It's like a, it's, it's a, it's a chocolate, right. chocolate center covered with a hard... Orange flavored, red colored uh, confectionery. Nice. So it's like hot. You, you you buy a little bit like an M and M, I guess. Right. Um, but they're big. They're big and round, and uh, very very popular here. Like a very popular movie treat. When I was right. a kid, you know, people would throw jaffers at you in the cinema <laughs> if you uh, laugh too loudly. You know, because they're hard. Well, yeah, they're, they're like they're like yeah, they're like like a marble, about the size of a marble, quite hard. You throw one of these things and it hits oh, you in the head. Yeah. It hurts. Keep keep your mouth yeah. shut. But anyway, go ahead. I'll try. I'll send yeah. you some jaffers. So if I can give a bookend to your story about the the two different groups of Jews, I did find this interesting when I was looking them up. So as they both start arriving in Palestine. They are both told by the Zionists, look, it, just in very general terms, if you could just kind of tone down the different aspects that makes you different, because we want you to come here, we want you to, to we all want to get along, we want to present a united front against the Arabs and against the government, that kind of stuff, um, so we can all just be appear as one people. However, the um, Ashkenazi did not want to go along with that. They felt that they were superior in many ways. They thought they were superior uh, as far as physical terms, uh, their cultural, uh, that kind of stuff. And so they refused to do that. And so there was a lot of tension between these two groups. Uh, they started butting heads again in Palestine. And in fact, and you won't be surprised by this, is this tension to some degree still goes on today. Now, again, uh, this is just, you know, like you said, they had lived apart for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years in these two different parts of Europe. They develop differently. They have different kind of worldviews in, in some aspects of their culture and religion. And they were, they're thrown together in Palestine. Those differences come up. Um, because one side feels better than the other, superior to the other. They're not willing to change or tone it down. So again, there's even more tension in this area when the Zionists all have a plan and these guys are butting heads with each other. I just found it interesting that they weren't willing to give up their some of their differences in order to help you know, facilitate the progress that they're, that they're trying to make in Palestine. Reminds me of the, the stories we're going to be talking about on the Renaissance show mm -hmm. this week when we get into more of the details about the uh, great schism in Christianity, the Orthodox and the mm -hmm. Catholics, and how oh, they God. you know couldn't agree yeah. on anything, and which, which, which getting back to the Ottomans, uh, led to the fall of Constantinople because the, the Orthodox, the, the Greeks, were hoping the Catholics would come and <laughs> save them from save the Ottomans, me. and they're like, are you willing to accept the Pope as uh, your leader? Well, I would rather no. die. And they're like, sorry, yeah. fuck, fuck, fuck you, you then. Yeah. <laughs> it's all connected. Yeah. So the original site, getting back to Pitak mm -hmm. Tikva, the, the first Zionist colony, it had been bought by the Zionists from two Christian Arabs right. who lived in Jaffa, another city um, in uh, Palestine at the time, famous uh, for, well, not famous, but well known by people who are interested in Napoleonic history right. because there was a big battle Napoleon fought there in 1799 oh, cool. where he famously uh, and rather um, embarrassingly uh -huh. to fans of Napoleon um, executed thousands of Ottoman prisoners. Damn. Um, here's 
his justification at the time was, well, we didn't have the resources to look after them, feed them, take them right. with us. We're going to be marching through the Middle East. Uh, we couldn't leave them there because they would just come back and fight us again. So executing them was the only thing that we could Fuck. do. He gets a lot of crap for that, but I don't know. It's, it's hard to argue yeah. against his logic. He'd also been told that before he took the city, they had been torturing and castrating and oh, decapitating right. the the uh, the locals. So uh, you know, he sort of allowed his people to slaughter them. And uh, uh, anyway, he also I think there's also where there was uh, people who had the plague, Jews that had the plague there, and he. Uh, he uh, went in amongst them and provided comfort. He gets a, he gets a lot of credit mm. um, from the Jews right. for his uh, treatment of them during that period, um, but not so much for his treatment of the Ottomans. Right. People don't like that. Anyway, uh, so they bought the land from these Christian Arabs who themselves had purchased it from the Ottoman authorities after its original owners, the local villagers, mm -hmm couldn't pay their suddenly massively increased taxes. Um, back then, as I've explained before, back then as now, if you've got people on land and you want that land and they won't sell you oh, well. that land, you, you have a variety of ways to get them off the land. I mean, you can just go and, and, and take it maybe, or you can invent new laws that make it illegal for them to own the land. You can rezone yeah. the land, something that's... For people that are fans of The Deuce that we... Uh, that just finished, David Simon's TV series that uh, finished in the last week or so, fabulous TV series if you really want to watch something that's very intelligent, very well mm -hmm. done. Uh, it's about the, the, the sort of um, sanitization of New York... In, in the 80s, where all of these dirty porn-filled districts like the Deuce uh, were sanitised. They, they got rid of all the brothels wow. and uh, the, the porn theatres and all of that kind of stuff. So developers like Donald Trump could get control of the land and put skyscrapers right. on them. And you see behind the scenes of that in the show where they're, you know, they're inventing ways, the politicians and the cops... Uh, inventing, inventing ways to get people, you know, the, the landowners off the land who won't sell or are pushing the price mm -hmm. up, uh, like and, and doing things like setting fires in the basements of their buildings oh um, in order to destroy their business and, and sort of force right. them to sell and rezoning it and passing new laws that basically forces them to sell to property developers. So this that, that's a tactic that it's been around forever. It's still around and the Ottomans were doing that uh, because they, they, they wanted to yeah. make money sell it um, and, and bring in, yeah, bring in uh, a new wealthy class of citizens that would uh, pay them bribes in a lot of cases to let them buy right. this land, speculators, property developers. So anyway, so the Zionists bought the land from Christians. When they settled there, about uh, 30 villages were allowed to continue to cultivate Aww. the fields initially that were rented to them by right. the settlers. Um, but these villages also laid claim to an area around Petak Tikva, right. saying that that particular area had never belonged to the Christians. Ooh. And then they, they ploughed a road through this area that they said ran through their fields. So they said, well, you, you know, okay, you bought some pockets of land from these Christians, but you didn't buy these other ones, which we are keeping, and you've put a road through our land, so they ploughed it up. Oh, it's getting ugly now. Okay. Right? Yeah. You can't, you can't put a road through our land uh, that doesn't belong there. So in early 1886, the uh, settlers, the Zionists, demanded that the Arabs vacate this disputed uh, land. And on March 28th of 1886, one of the settlers used the ploughed over road. He was, oh, you know, riding his donkey down right. or whatever, and he was attacked and robbed 
by Arabs. And as a response to that, the Zionist settlers confiscated nine mules that they found grazing on their fields. And I I want to point out at this juncture, there's a lot of argument about who shot first here. Right, of course. Um, who, Who did what and who was retaliating to who. But uh, the settlers refused to return the mules. And then the, the next day, when most of the Zionist men were away, 50 or 60 Arab villagers attacked Petak Tikva, right. vandalized houses and fields, carried away a lot of the livestock. Four settlers were injured, and a fifth, an elderly woman with a heart condition, died Ooh. four days right. later. So the first recorded act of large-scale violence, you know, not a whipping or a beating or anything right. like that, but you An know, attack. S- serious yeah. Arab Muslim on Jew violence happened yeah. as early as 1886 at the very first Zionist yeah. colony. So the thing for me when I was reading over this is that uh, Arab law and order might not be the greatest thing in the world, but the Jews could easily point to their... Um, their settlement and, and show the authorities their the destruction. So with the help of Ottoman soldiers, the Jews of, the, of that particular colony were able to capture 31 Arab peasants and bring them to Jaffa, where they were imprisoned. And as you can imagine, I think we said this earlier in the show, the uh, European governments that these Jews came from were quite sensitive to how their their citizens were being treated, even though that they're Jews. And so the Euro- European consulates uh, representing the settlers um want these guys brought to justice. So so it's getting tense right away. There's been violence. They're trying to use the uh, the Arab law. We'll just have to see how that goes. But the point is, you never really know who did what first, but now it's in the hands of the law, and we'll see exactly how fair the Jews will be treated. Well, I'm just looking at a uh-huh. map here uh, on the old Google Maps to see how far Petak Tikva is from Jaffa. Uh, yeah, right. not far. Um, you know, probably uh, half hour drive gotcha. by the looks of it. Maybe not even that. Twenty minute drive these days. Yeah. yeah. Jaffa is basically you know where Tel Aviv, Petak Tikva, and uh, Jaffa basically where Tel Aviv is mm. today. Um, so, you know, supposedly the capital of Israel, depending on. What Donald Trump's next pronouncement <laughs> is for it could his, change. Uh, I could change uh, my mind. Go ahead. <laughs> so uh, yes, they were in prison. Now, just you know, let's let's keep in mind here that this is happening only four years after the massive Russian Ooh. pogroms of eighteen eighty one, eighteen eighty two. The very first Zionist village. Is, is also led to violence. But the difference is, I mean, this isn't a religious pogrom right. and the Arabs aren't blaming the Jews for a plague or right. for the death of uh, a, 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 a czar or an assassination right. attempt or an assassination, in in fact, of a czar, like the Border pogroms. Dispute. This, yeah. Wa- this was, yeah, this was a land right. dispute. You you don't own this land. Yes, we do. Right. Fuck you. No, <laughs> fuck you, sir. Um, that's what led. It, it, this wasn't. Right. This wasn't. Wasn't racism, and it wasn't religion. Right. It, as far as I can tell, it was. It was a land yeah. dispute. Now today, Petak Tikva is the second largest industrial sector in Israel after the city of wow. Haifa. It's been the site of three suicide bombings in the last 17 years. Um, so it all worked out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, it was very important to the Jews, and they were going to make sure that that, became, that settlement became a city, and it is you know, a very prominent one. So, yeah, the Jews don't forget, just like everybody else. So it was the very first site of uh, mm-hmm. Arab-on-Jew large-scale right. violence in Israel slash Palestine and still a site of yeah. violence between those two yeah. groups today, whatever, 130 years right. later. So the villagers who worked the land had it taken away from them and they saw it as colonialism. 
which I think is reasonable. Rich Jews or Jews financed by rich right. Jews came in, bought the land out from underneath them. They had no way then of supporting their families. Immigrants were taking their lands. Europeans were literally, because these Jews were mm-hmm. Europeans, uh, I mean, they had Middle Eastern DNA, <clears throat> yes, but they also had a lot of right. European DNA, and they their people had lived in Europe for the better part of the last 1,000 or 1,500 or 2,000 years. Um, so from the viewpoint of the Arabs, these Europeans are coming yeah. in and illegally. taking over their land, kicking them off right. their own land. Uh, well, yeah, in, in some cases illegally. I mean, we said before that the Ottoman authorities arrested Arabs in this case. Yes. So maybe these these particular Jews in Petak Tikva were deemed to be there legally. This might have been before the Ottomans cracked down right. on uh, Russian Jewish immigration to the region, which I think happened kind of after this in the late 1880s and the early 1890s. Um, you know, they had various uh, uh, periods of that where they increased the level of banning of Russian Jews coming right. into the land. But the, the, the point is, is that in most cases, when the violence broke out, the authorities took the side of the Jews mm-hmm. uh, in these early stages, whether they were legal or not, because the Jews had the money to pay the backsheesh. Right. And in the other part of that is Samuel Hirsch, the manager of the Petak Tikva colony, uh, sends a letter to the governor of Jaffa to demand a trial for these 31 Arabs who are arrested. We can get into the ending of the story in a, in a minute, but the point is you've got the money, you've got connections, you've got your consulates um, c- connecting the higher-ups in, in the Ottoman Empire. So, yeah, they're going to get a response to this incursion, if you will, because of things like money, power, and influence. And the poor Arabs ain't got shit. Yeah, the the poor Arabs can't bribe the local officials, but the Jews could because they were being financed by the Rothschilds amongst other rich Jews. Um, So, yeah, they were able to bribe their way into winning these sorts of disputes. And apparently, eventually, the Arabs, the local population, just resigned themselves to the situation. Well, fucking what are you going to do? I mean, they've got the authorities on their side... Illegally, but through bribery. <laughs> yeah. um, what can we do? Now, some apparently were even happy about it. The Arabs who lived in the neighbouring villages to the ones that were taken over by the Jews right. did, in fact, prosper through trading with the Jewish settlers. It wasn't their land that was being taken uh, yet. Right. <laughs> God, the irony in some that statement. Them, the irony in that statement. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, well, it's it's like uh, first they came for the socialists, <laughs> but I did not protest because I wasn't a socialist, right? Right. It's like, well, yeah, they took not, those guys' yeah, land, we're good. but they're not taking our land, yeah. so it's we'll all good. Yeah. yeah. So they traded with them. Some of them got workers, even field hands or, or guards of the properties, uh, Ar- you know, Jews hiring Arabs to guard their property against attacks by other Arabs. Right. But then... And this is where I want to finish up because this will get us into the next episode. In the early 20th century, mm-hmm. Arab nationalism began to, to grow. Right. Led by a guy called Najib Azuri, who was a runaway Ottoman civil servant. He was actually a, a Maronite Christian. We talked about the Maronites, I think, um, back in our Syria right. Civil War series. Mm. He uh, had studied in Paris and later returned there to fight a propaganda war, a propaganda war against the Ottoman Empire. Because, you know, what, I, th- I think sometimes I fall into the trap of thinking, well, everyone in the Ottoman Empire, they were all Muslims, so they no. all felt like a, a single empire. Yeah. But of course, no. it's like the British Empire at its height. Right. The Indians might have been part of the British Empire, but they didn't think of themselves as British. <laughs> no. Um, so, uh, you know, there was lots of pockets of the Ottoman Empire at this stage who wanted to break away. And, of course, the Arabs were part of that. And as they started to think of themselves as a single people 
Uh, they've been they've been oppressed for well forever right. really i mean they they had had been under ottoman rule turkish rule for centuries yeah. before that you had the the byzantine empire before that you know the romans before that the greeks before that the persians they'd been well i guess the persians were arabs uh, it's been a long time since yeah, uh, they were the Arabs minorities. had control right. Arabia, right? Uh, and they they started to go, hey, you know, because nationalism was a big thing. I mean, like Germany and Italy uh, started to think of themselves as nation states only in the the late nineteenth century. Started to spread to these Arab nations as well, the Arab peoples as well, right? And that just leads to a whole nother round of tensions, which we'll get into in the next episode. You've got World War One, you've got the European powers trying to break up the Ottoman Empire and take it for themselves. Meanwhile, you've got the Arabs trying to take it for themselves, you've got the Jews trying to take it for themselves, you've got the British promising it to the Arabs and the Jews at the same time. <laughs> Listen, just help us out in the war here and trust me, it'll right, all be good. Right. You've got the British and the French right. trying to... <laughs> fighting amongst each other for who's going to control these lands after the war. Oh, my God. Yeah. Complete clusterfuck, but let's talk about that uh, in episode 138, Ray. Yes. But he's a racist. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. That's a good thing I was drunk. Fuck it. No. It's not sexy. Mentally retarded. <laughs> Hammond rules right number four, I think. That's a power play, baby. You are a trendsetter. In your head. Jimmy's getting angry! I'm here for you, buddy. I am eligible. I'm one fourth Cherokee. Pedophile. <laughs>